0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, we took a look at the testimony provided by Kenosha Police Detective Ben Antaramian, one of the lead detectives on this case. On today's episode, we explore the testimonies offered by the last two state witnesses, both forensics experts. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
0: On the morning of november 9, 2021 the prosecution called the last two witnesses in the state's case both forensics experts but each from decidedly different forensic fields the first witness of the day is james armstrong a senior forensic imaging specialist with the wisconsin state crime lab After establishing Armstrong's credentials and the accreditation and peer review procedures observed by the state lab, prosecutor James Krause asked that the court AV Tech put up a series of media files on the courtroom TV screen. Among those media files is an image of Joseph Rosenbaum holding the now oft-discussed clear hospital bag. The witness explains the procedures and applications that he used to enhance the details in that image. Also included in the media files is a still image from infrared video recorded from a fixed-wing aircraft operated by the FBI. Prosecutor Krauss prompts the witness to explain that he came to annotate the identities of each of the individuals captured in the video based on direction from the prosecutor's office. Armstrong also explains the techniques he used to create his annotations. Krauss then directs the tech to play that video and we again see the aerial infrared footage of the last moments of Joseph Rosenbaum's life. The same video that was played extensively during Detective Martin Howard's testimony. The final media files presented to Armstrong are from the drone footage without sound that was procured only a few days before it was first presented during the testimony of Detective Ben Antaramian. Again, that video shows the sequence of Joseph Rosenbaum pursuing Kyle Rittenhouse into the car source lot, Rittenhouse shooting Rosenbaum, and the aftermath of the shooting. The vantage point of the drone is from approximately 100 feet south of the car source lot, behind Rittenhouse, and perhaps 50 feet in the air. The third of these files is an augmentation of the section of footage that captures the actual moments of Kyle Rittenhouse turning and firing his weapon at Joseph Rosenbaum. The fourth is that same augmented section of video slowed down by 50%. The fifth is a further enlargement of the moments that Rittenhouse fires his weapon. After all of the evidence and the testimonial context presented by the parties in this case so far, These video clips are by far the clearest representation of the speed with which all of it took place, offer the most compelling image of how close Rosenbaum was to Rittenhouse when the shots were fired, and show just how fortunate Richie McGinnis was not to be struck by Kyle Rittenhouse's gunfire. We will put portions of these three video clips up on our CrimeStory.com website if you are interested in taking a look, but please be aware that it is disturbing footage of a man being shot. We pick up James Armstrong's testimony with his cross-examination by defense attorney Mark Richards.
2: The exhibits we've just shown the jury, correct me if I'm wrong, but you began working on putting them together on Friday.
3: I began working on them on Sunday.
2: Okay. When did the crime lab receive them?
3: The crime lab received that as a submittal on Sunday.
2: Okay. And who submitted them to you? I was ADA Jim Cross. Okay. And you're familiar with the fact that we didn't receive these videos until Friday of last week. I was informed that that was the circumstance, yes. Okay. And when you do this, you're not adding color, correct? That is correct. I'm not adding color. You're not adding pixels.
3: With regards to enlargement, there is interpolation, and so pixels are added to that.
2: Okay, color's not changed?
3: Color is not changed.
2: So if you blow something up 10%, what does that do for the pixel number?
3: The pixels will increase by interpolation of that
2: area. What was the resolution of the source video?
3: The resolution for that file, it was 1920 by 844.
2: And in layman's terms, what is that?
3: Uh, that's 1920 pixels by
2: 844 pixels. And that's kind of tells you the clarity. The more pixels, the clearer it is.
3: The more pixels, the higher resolution, there's more information present.
0: Richards concludes his cross of Armstrong by asking the witness about syncing up videos based on frame rates and audio. Armstrong replies that those are areas beyond his expertise and the witness is excused. Prosecutor Krause next calls Dr. Doug Kelly, a forensic pathologist with the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office. Kelly sports short, dirty blonde hair, dark wire-rimmed glasses, and a full graying beard. He wears a blue suit, powder blue button-down shirt, and a dark red tie. After asking the witness about his credentials, Prosecutor Krause inquires about Anthony Huber's autopsy. Now,
4: doctor, I'd like to uh, focus on uh, Mr. Huber first. Uh, do you recall when you did the autopsy on Mr. Huber?
5: And the autopsy on Mr. Huber was done on the morning of August 26th of 2020.
4: And were you able to determine the cause of death to Mr. Huber? Yes. And what was that cause of death?
5: Uh, Mr. Huber died from a gunshot wound to the chest.
4: And is that an opinion given to with a reasonable degree of medical certainty? It is. And uh, what can you tell us about this gunshot wound?
5: Uh, so Mr. Huber has an entrance wound uh, that is just below the left nipple. Um, it uh, basically travels through his chest and creates trauma to both of the lungs and, and specifically to the heart. There's a lot of, of damage to the heart. Uh, so he has a, a large amount of, of blood within his body cavities, his chest cavities. And the projectile uh, the didn't exit. There's actually a, a bruise, and it was some s- scraping to the surface. And it's located to the right shoulder, just beneath the collarbone. And in that location, I collected a, a bullet fragment. Um, so this, this is the single gunshot wound, and it uh, created lethal injury involving the heart and lungs.
4: Now, why would that gunshot wound have been lethal? Well, what would have killed Mr. Huber?
5: Uh, the, the trauma to the heart and lungs is pretty extensive from this, uh, from this wound. Uh, so he, uh, he bled from the wounds that were created by the gunshot.
4: So to the best of your knowledge, would it have been the loss of blood that caused death or the damage to the organs or a combination of both?
5: The combination of both.
4: Now, what was the traje- trajectory of the bullet or the wound path? Uh, this, this wound
5: path had a trajectory that was left to right and upwards.
4: Now, when you're talking about trajectory, what are you relating it to? Uh, well, in, in, in order to have a,
5: a, a standard set of criteria to, to be able to discuss trajectories, we put the body in something we call anatomic position. And simply put, the anatomic position is with the person standing straight up with the palms forward. So the person's left is left, the person's right is right, superior and inferior, up and down, and front and back are relative to that person. So it's that simple.
0: Krauss then moves on to ask Kelly about his autopsy of Joseph Rosenbaum, including his evaluation of each of the four shots that struck the decedent.
4: Were you able to come to a conclusion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty on the, what caused the death of Mr. Rosenbaum? Yes. What was that?
5: Mr. Rosenbaum died from multiple gunshot wounds.
4: Do you know how many gunshot wounds Mr. that you found on Mr. Rosenbaum?
5: Uh, well, Mr. Rosenbaum has a number of injuries. Um, there are um, uh, two injuries in which uh, the bullet entered the body and did not exit, so I collected bullets from those injuries. There's a third injury that is a graze wound in which the bullet just grazed the skin superficially. And then there is uh, a a gunshot wound to the left hand and an area to the left thigh that appear to uh, uh, be separate but may actually be, um, I I think they're related uh, to the same uh, gunshot wound.
0: As Krauss asks Kelly about how close Rittenhouse's gun was to Rosenbaum when fired, the witness explains what stippling is, powder tattooing on the skin surrounding an entry wound, and how it is used to determine firing range. As the distance between the shooter and the shooting victim increases, the larger and less dense the patch of stippling will be. Krauss then asks.
4: So you, you would you estimate that... Sorry, Be clear, you're saying that he was about four feet away or he was within four feet? Uh,
5: I'm saying that, that, well, the best way of putting it is the only way to to be more accurate is to test fire the weapon and uh, see what kind of a a pattern you get because the density of that gunpowder stippling pattern might help you somewhat. But this is pretty spread out. Um, So all we can really say is that it's within a few feet.
4: And what was the path of that gunshot wound? Uh,
5: It's basically front to back and a little left to right.
4: And in your medical opinion, is this the kind of shot that would have resulted in loss of life?
5: Uh, It's not an immediately lethal wound. Uh, No, obviously, you know, all gunshot wounds can can produce morbidity and, and mortality, but... Uh, in this particular instance, this is not an immediately lethal
4: wound. Did you find any wounds to the hand?
5: The left hand has a gunshot wound. Um, it's a very complex wound. There is tearing of the skin to the palmar surface at the base of the uh, index and middle fingers. There's a tear that extends up the middle finger, and there's actually some, uh, a lot of soot to this area and tearing to the underlying soft tissues. Uh, that soot continues to the other fingers of the palm or surface of the hand. Um, this wound is associated with fracturing to the first bone of the index finger, so the bone just beyond the knuckle. That bone is fractured by this wound path. Uh, and then it exits uh, to the uh, back of the hand just, just beyond the, uh, the knuckle of the index finger. So, if we were to put this into anatomic position, which we talked about a minute ago with the palm forward, this, the trajectory of this wound path with the hand in anatomic position is uh, basically front to back, right to left, and a little bit upwards.
4: Now, the hand injury, uh, would that? Would you consider that to be an injury that would quickly cause death?
5: No, that's not a lethal wound either.
4: And this injury to the left thigh, is that, uh, is that the kind of injury that would cause death?
5: No, it's not.
4: Uh, would, it be, would it be fair to say that's something of a superficial wound? Yes. Now, I'd like to talk to you about a gunshot wound to the head. What can you tell me about that?
5: Look, to the right frontal area of the head, um, so, so basically the right lateral forehead, um, there is a graze wound, as I mentioned previously. So this is a superficial injury in which uh, the, the bullet grazed the, grazed the surface of the skin or created an abrasion or scrape. and based on the appearances of the edge of this, of this wound, it appears to be traveling in a back to front and downward orientation.
4: Now, is that wound, would that be considered to be a wound that would be immediately fatal?
5: No, it's not.
4: Now, Doctor, I'd like to talk to you about a uh, gunshot wound to the chest and the abdomen. What can you tell me about that gunshot wound?
5: Well, this, this gunshot wound to Mr. Rosenbaum, it enters the back uh, about an inch to the left of the upper midline, um, and this is the one that passes through the right chest cavity. Um, it uh, creates a great deal of injury to the right lung. Uh, there's blood within the right chest cavity. It then Uh, perforates the the diaphragm uh, at the base of the lung and enters the liver, which is right under the diaphragm, creates a great deal of injury to the liver. Um, uh, There's fracturing of several ribs in association with this wound path as well. But then the wound path, um, after creating all this injury, it passes into the right flank, and there was a Uh, a bruise to the right flank under which I collected a uh, a bullet.
4: Now, we've talked about how the other injuries were not ones that would immediately cause a mortal wound. Uh, What impact do you believe that this gunshot would have had on Mr. Rosenbaum? Uh,
5: This gunshot wound is a lethal injury.
4: Now, what was the trajectory of this gunshot wound?
5: Uh, This gunshot wound is downward left to right, and back to front.
4: So, Doctor, is your testimony that in the video you reviewed, uh, which the jury has seen, uh, the the first gunshots are while Mr. Rosenbaum is facing Mr. Rittenhouse? Yes. And you said that at least one of those was intermediate out to four feet away? Uh, Yes. And then uh, you see in the video that uh, Mr. Rosenbaum continues going forward, and he begins to uh tilt or fall and is it your opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty that the back to front shots to the head and then the kill shot to the back would have been while he was falling or perpendicular to the ground uh
5: the the only way that the uh trajectories of the gunshot wounds to the right side of the head and the back make sense is if he's more horizontal to the ground and that is occurring um At the time that the last two gunshot wounds are heard on the video,
4: Doctor, we talked about this hand wound and where and how that occurred. Um, If someone is pointing a rifle at you, an AR-15, do you have an explanation of how that hand could be positioned that would result in the injury shown, and then also uh, perhaps the injury to the thigh from that same round?
5: Well. As I said, this is a a close-range injury, um, and uh, so his hand is in close proximity or in contact with the end of that rifle. Um, So you can you can kind of think of it in your in your head. You know, if you put if you put the end of the rifle close to that trajectory through his hand, um, you move the hand around. That's you can put it in different. Uh, relationships to the body that uh, can explain that uh, typically by turning the palm towards the ground, it would make, make uh, sense that it could uh, go through the hand, hit the ground, and then create the injuries to the, uh, uh, the left side of the
0: thigh. To summarize Dr. Kelly's testimony, the shot that grazed Joseph Rosenbaum's head and the shot that entered his back were the last shots fired. Also, they were fired when Rosenbaum was parallel to the ground or in the middle of already falling forward. The prosecution implicitly, but never explicitly, suggests that if Rosenbaum was a threat to Kyle Rittenhouse when he started shooting, he was not a threat to Rittenhouse when Rittenhouse fired the fatal shots. During our weekly recap, we will, of course, discuss Dr. Kelly's testimony. Specifically, we will inquire whether the prosecution squandered an opportunity here. Could they have reseized control of the narrative by using the enhanced drone footage of the Rosenbaum shooting in conjunction with Dr. Kelly's testimony to suggest that even if Kyle Rittenhouse was acting in reasonable self-defense with the first shot that he fired, that the successive shots were acts of excessive use of force? Prosecutor Krause turns the witness over to defense attorney Mark Richards for cross-examination. Richards begins by focusing on how close Rosenbaum's hand was to the barrel of Rittenhouse's weapon when the shot hitting that hand was fired.
2: Now, the soot stippling, and I'm pointing with the pointer to my baby finger. There is no soot stippling here, correct? Um, I believe that's correct. Yes. Okay. The bulk of it starts between what would be the ring and kind of refer to as middle finger. Yes. Okay, so that means the barrel of the gun, if not touching, would have been like this. It's in that location, that's correct. So that hand was over the barrel of Mr. Rittenhouse's gun when his hand was shot. That makes sense.
0: Richards jumps to asking Kelly about Anthony Huber. After a series of prosecution objections to the defense asking the witness about what he saw in video footage rather than what he observed in the autopsy, Judge Bruce Schrader overrules the objection and allows Richards to proceed with his questions.
2: There is a blow from Mr. Huber to my client's head with a skateboard, correct? Yes, the skateboard makes contact with Mr. He swings the skateboard with his right hand into my client's back neck wrench, correct? I'm not sure where it makes
5: impact, but...
2: You see an impact.
5: Yeah, it makes contact.
2: And he reaches down with his left hand, seeming to grab my client's gun, correct? Yes. When he puts his hand on the gun, the barrel is not pointing in his chest, correct?
5: Uh,
2: I, I don't recall, but I don't think so. Okay. And through whatever movement between my client and Mr. Huber, the gun barrel ends up, which would be right about here. It does. Okay, and there's a gunshot, correct? Yes. And that gun is touching his clothes.
5: Uh, it's it's in intermediate range. It's so closer. And in, define intermediate range for me. please. Well, again, we've talked about how uh, intermediate range injuries can be within four feet, and but it obviously from the video it's closer than that. But I can't say whether the
2: muzzle is in contact with. Oh, okay. His. But- clothing. Through the type of stippling that you have on the Huber wound, you know it's less than four feet. Fair statement? That's a fair statement. Through independent evidence, which you review as a forensic pathologist slash investigator, the video evidence establishes closer. It does.
0: Richards then returns to asking about the sequence of shots that struck Joseph Rosenbaum. Just assume,
2: for the purposes of this question, that the first shot from my client moving back to Mr. Rosenbaum now, is the zero shot, number one. The fourth shot is 76 hundredths of a second after that. That is how fast the four shots were fired out of my client's gun. And he's goes from the furthest Four feet to touching the gun, correct? Uh, yes.
0: Like it, it's a, a doctor answered yes. Overall,
2: and your opining regarding the order of shots is that to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty or medical certainty, I apologize. Uh,
5: no, medical certainty, as i pointed out from the autopsy findings alone, um, you, you can't put these in order. It's only by reviewing the video and, and, and simply looking at the orientation of his body and, co- and comparing that to the findings on the body that you can do that. So uh, to that degree of certainty, it, it
2: appears that he's in that horizontal position. And the, Mr. Kuros asked it, the shot to the pelvis you think is first? I think that makes the most sense. Okay. The shot that goes in the scalp second. Uh,
5: no, I, I think that the the only orientation that makes sense with the trajectory trage- uh, excuse me tra- trajectory of the gunshot wound to the back and the right side of the head is when he's in more of a horizontal position. So those two injuries must be the third and the fourth injuries, uh, but that, that's and the best I can do.
2: The head wound goes back to front and from the top of the head down towards the forehead. That's right. Okay, so if I was charging like a bull and diving, that would be consistent? Uh, it would be. I don't think so either.
0: Early in this case, we remarked on what appeared to be Mark Richards' intentional use of dehumanizing language to describe those individuals who engaged with Kyle Ridenhouse. That tactic is nowhere more evident than in his describing Joseph Rosenbaum as a charging bull. On redirect, Prosecutor Kraus does nothing to call out the defense attorney's implicit dehumanization of the deceased Mr. Rosenbaum. Instead, he focuses on an alternative explanation for the sequence of gunshots.
4: Doctor, the injuries you uh, noted, they'd also be consistent with falling after being struck in the hip? Yes. So if Mr. Rosenbaum was struck in the hip, that his, his momentum kept carrying him forward, he was falling, the other three shots could have been as he was falling.
5: That's, that's possible too.
0: But it's consistent with that. It is. Krauss then plays footage that contains four different videos from different perspectives that are playing in sync with one another based on the sound of those videos. Krauss finally gets Kelly to articulate why, in his opinion, the defense explanation of the shot sequence doesn't stand up to forensic scrutiny.
4: Do you can you see where on there you you indicate that he would be positioned with the first shot?
5: Yes, I can. I can clearly see the reflection of light on his back, and I can see that he's upright when the first shot is heard.
4: So that would not be consistent with the shot to the hand
5: uh no i think that's uh, uh uh i think that placing the hand in that position would affect the gunpowder stippling to his lower abdomen uh so i don't think the hand is involved in that first shot
4: so to the best of your so it's consistent that the first shot is to the hip
5: that's what i think that's what i think yes
4: and then the second shot would be to the hand yes and then the third or fourth shot can you order those any more specifically no but they would be as he's in a horizontal position uh perhaps falling after being struck in the hip that's right
0: kraus ultimately does show dr kelly the drone footage presented during the testimony of james armstrong he references a cloud of smoke that appears to represent the first shot fired by Kyle Rittenhouse. But rather than use the video to have the doctor take the jury through his theory of the sequence of the first two shots, he instead gets bogged down by confusing gun smoke and soot with powder stippling. Krauss concludes his questioning by awkwardly trying to establish a prosecution theory for the sequence of shots.
4: So Dr.
0: is it consistent if
4: I am approaching a the detective I am struck in my hip, fracturing my hip, that I would fall, reach out with my hand and try to knock run away?
5: That's a possibility.
0: Richards counters with his forward momentum theory.
2: When you get shot the first time, you're, that doesn't cause you to go forward, correct? It, it shouldn't cause you to go forward, back, or, or okay. Anything. So he already, Mr. Rosenbaum, already had to have forward momentum at a force to go from the zero shot to the second shot in two point two six hundredths of a second to be in contact or right on top of that burn, correct? Yes, he had forward momentum. Thank okay. you.
0: And with that, Dr. Kelly is excused as a witness, and we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next episode as we examine the motions hearing that happens just before the state rests its case, and then as we begin our look at testimony of the witnesses called by Rittenhouse's defense team.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.
0: You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.